Hey, just want to thank um, the team for leading us in these songs. Man, they were so powerful, and it was a very special time of worship. And want to welcome all of you to church today. Uh, after the service, as soon as uh, the benediction uh, wraps up, we're going to have a slideshow. Uh, some of our church uh, students sent in pictures, and so we've got uh, a slideshow for their favorite pictures of their dads and the kids. And I tell you, Pastor Paul's is probably the best one out of all of them. So make sure you stick around to see that. Um, it'll cheer you up for sure. At least his will. Uh, but they were also good. And uh, uh, so I just want to share that with you. As Pastor John mentioned, you know, we're really excited about VBS this summer. And we want you to sign up like now, like today, as soon as uh, the service ends, if you would sign up. Uh, the team, you know, our, our directors there have been working so hard, and there's a whole team of teachers and volunteers that's going to make it as good as possible. And this is going to be so different and maybe even better than doing it in person. And there's going to be so much happening there. And so you don't want your kids to miss out. Uh, and this is a good opportunity maybe for you to invite someone who doesn't uh, go to church. Maybe their children don't go to church. Um, and so this would be a good chance for them to hear the gospel. Uh, and so we're looking forward to that. They're doing uh, music and crafts and lessons, and they've got the best of our church as their teacher serving in various ways. And so sign up today, uh, as Pastor John mentioned, um, and I think it's like, what, five or ten bucks or something like that. Uh, but it'll be definitely worth your while. So make sure you do that. Today we uh, jump into a new book, a small book at the end of the New Testament called Titus. And in this book, we basically, he, uh, Paul starts out by answering the simple questions of uh, why, uh, uh, who he is, why he's doing what he's doing, and what he is doing exactly. Now, let me go over that with us. Um, if you don't know who you really are, it doesn't define why you do what you do. And if you don't know the why of your life, the what you do uh, oftentimes becomes meaningless. Now, in the world today, many people mistakenly, they answer it backwards. So they answer the what I do, and that leads to now who they are. So they identify themselves by what they do. But here Paul tells us who he is first and why God put him here and then what he does. And so the order is very significant, and we see that in this text. Um, so he talks about who he is. He talks about himself as a servant of God. He talks about why he is here. He's here for the faith of the other people. He wants their faith to grow. And then thirdly, what is he supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to live in godliness in this present day. We're supposed to live and practice godliness. That's what we do. And so the who we are leads to answers the questions of why am I here? And that defines now uh, what we do. And so we were going to follow that outline and go through the greeting here in the book of Titus. You know, uh, the letters that were written then, and we see it, almost half of the uh, New Testament are the letters from Paul. And they start with a greeting. And often it starts with the sender or the writer's name first, right? It tells us here in verse 1, it was Paul who writes this. And this makes sense if you think about it. Uh, in our day and age, we write the letter and is at the end. We write sincerely, uh, respectfully, or in love, and you write your name at the end. But back in the days, they would write their name first. 
and it would let the reader know, oh, this is a letter from so-and-so. This is a letter from Paul. And so when they were looking for the right letters, they would know by looking at the very first uh, part of the letter. Um, Paul, just a little background, Paul visited uh, the island of Crete um, after his first Roman imprisonment. And he takes a man named Titus there. Titus is his, one of his protégés or disciples, and they go there. And uh, the church that is in Crete is in a lot of trouble. First of all, they don't have any leaders. They don't have any elders there. And so you can imagine now they're trying to do this without any leadership. And there's a lot of problems. And not only that, they had a couple big factors that were going against them. Number one uh, was the culture in Crete. The culture, they had a notorious reputation. The Cretans were known for the notorious reputation of, uh, by the Roman world. So one of the poets of the day talked about uh, the Cretans, and he said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So the people on this island of Crete were known in these negative ways. So the culture was already negative. People were believing what the Roman world was saying about them. Not only that, they had an invasion of the Hellenistic or the, the Greek-influenced Jews. And the, these who became Christians were coming into the church, and they were bringing in all of their old ways, all of their old uh, religious ways and ceremonies and legalism. So these two factors are invading the church. One part is licentiousness, free to do whatever you please, sin and do whatever the flesh wants. And this was the Cretan culture was coming in. And the second part was all this legalism. No, you need to do A, B, and C and follow these rules, and you need to measure up if you want to be accepted by God. And both of these factors were going against the gospel. It was the same then, it's the same today. And it is in that he writes this letter. And so we're going to spend the, a good chunk of the summer going through this letter of Titus. Uh, and it is in the greeting. He now explains who he is and who we are. He wants to get their identity correct. The, the label that they had been given as Cretans were not correct. They are now born again. They are saints. They are the people of God. He talks about who he is. He talks about why he is doing all that he does the why behind it, and it leads to the what, to live and practice godliness. And we see that here. So first of all is the question of identity. Who are we? We have to know who we are in order to live this out. Paul, in verse 1, if you look, he identifies himself by his name, Paul, comma, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we're going to pause here. The first thing he does is he answers the question who he is. And he really answers it for us as well. By that first description, a servant of God. It's interesting, he gives us his name, Paul. Uh, Paul is the Latin version of the name that is used by often by the Greeks, and it was his Greek name, Paulus. And so uh, we often think and that prior to the road to Damascus, that he was Paul when he was the Pharisee and he wasn't a Christian. And after he met Christ on the road to Damascus, or he was Saul then, and he becomes Paul. And we see sometimes names have been given by God. But in Paul's case, actually, he was given two names from birth. Uh, it wasn't like uh, Saul was his pre-Christ name and Paul is his Christian name. They were both given to him. 
And so Saul is the Hebrew name. And so you can imagine, and I think for many of us who are uh, immigrant children, many of us have several names, right? If you're uh, like me and some of my documents, it has my old Korean name, it has my English name, my parents have different names. They have an English name they adopted by where they live, but a given name by their ethnicity. Same with Paul or Saul. Paul's name, his original name was Saul because he is now uh, of Jewish uh, descent, but he lived in the Greek culture, so he was given a Greek name. So he went by both, as most scholars would tell us. And so he identifies himself with his name Paul. And then the first description of himself is he describes himself as a servant of God. This is the who. Who is he? Who am I? We are servants of God. And in that little st statement there, he sums up his whole identity. He's a servant of God. You are servants of God. Uh, this word servant, doulos, in the original language, it translated bond servant, slave, uh, servant here, so on. Um, some people are a little hesitant to even use the word because of the negative connotation it has in slavery and the picture we have in American history. But the slave or the doulos back in the biblical days uh, had a lot more rights. It was very different than what we saw in American history um, that we know of as a slave. So a servant had rights. A servant could buy his way to freedom. A servant was often given uh, much responsibility, immense amounts of money to manage. And so they were kind of like the manager of the house in, in a lot of cases. And so they would now earn their way, and often they would now come back as freed people, and they would work uh, for them, and they would stay close with them there. And so he now describes himself as a servant of God, but the servant's purpose really is to serve the master. If we could argue, uh, probably the American way is that I would be my own master. I'd be a servant to my own self. I would do what I want. And Paul here takes himself out of the equation. He takes himself out of the master's chair, and he says he's a servant of God. God is on the throne, and he serves God. The will of God is his will. The desires of God are his desires. The commands of God are his, now, uh, words to obey. And so this is who he, he is. This is his description. Uh, it's interesting because on this particular letter, he calls himself a servant of God. In other letters, he called himself a servant of Jesus Christ. So some have said, well, what, what, what could this be? Uh, one of the commentators points this out, that in the Old Testament, whether it's Moses or David, Joshua, Amos, Jeremiah, they all identify themselves as servants of God. And in this letter, particularly to the Cretans, who now have many of these people with Jewish backgrounds coming in, the phrase servant of God would point them right back to the Old Testament, the authority of the Old Testament. And it is as if Paul uses now, changes it from God the Son to God the Father, and he talks about now being a servant of God to point to the authority that he has, that it is equal to the authority that Moses had. It is equal to what Amos had, what David had, what Jeremiah had. Um, and so he is now using that term to perk up the ears of the, uh, the Jewish-influenced Christians. They're saying, oh, this is who he is. 
It's interesting because the very next phrase, he calls himself now an apostle of Christ. The apostles were the 12, those who physically saw Christ. And so now Paul is added to the list of apostles. And so he now brings the authority of the Old Testament saints, the New Testament disciples, the apostle, the servant, and he comes to now these believers. And to those who want to argue about him or say, boy, this Old Testament way is better or the New Testament way is the right way, the Jewish way was the correct way, whatever it is, he comes with the authority of the whole Bible as the servant of God. Now let me ask you, who are you? We often define ourselves by what we do. But we have to define ourselves not by what we do, but who we are in God's eyes. You know, in high school, I was on the football team, um, and I still remember, and I still have my letterman jacket at home, and it is uh, just stuck in the corner somewhere, and I pull it out once every few years to show my kids, trying to impress them. Uh, but that was really my identity. Right? More than anything else, I was like, I'm, a, I'm on the football team, and it was a big deal. Uh, back in the 80s, I thought. Um, and I remember my end of my junior year, I ended up having, in the summer before my senior year, right, this is going to be the best ever because I'm going to enter my senior year in high school you know, to play football. And I had a kidney uh, uh, injury, and I was hospitalized for two weeks and had my, I was uh, you know, out for the whole season. It's right before hell week and everything started. And I remember I was out, and my kidney was uh, healing. It had gotten lacerated, um, and it was a long story short. It was a blessing in disguise because there was something wrong with my left side kidney. And uh, being, by being tackled playing football, it actually pointed that out ahead of time. But I remember th being so devastated because that was my identity. And what am I going to do? I remember going to the games, wearing my you know, smelly jacket and going there, and hobbling around, trying to fit in. That was my identity. And think about it. If we identify ourselves by the things that we do, it ends so quickly. I would not dare wear that jacket when I started college and walk around the college campus saying, that's my identity. No, that's embarrassing. I took that off, and now I'm a college student. Went to the bookstore and bought a college sweatshirt. Right? It was fashionable then. I don't know if it is now to get the little license plate frame that has the name of your school. Just letting everyone know I go to school there. And sometimes we identify with that and we cling to that. But that ends quickly. For some of us, it's a little quicker than others, but it still ends at one time or another. And then what is it? What is your identity? Our identity is not by what we do, but it is by who God says we are. I'm a servant of God. Paul Tripp writes a book called Dangerous Calling. It's a book for pastors but the warning he gives is really relevant to all of us, and I want to share this quote. The normal human struggle is to look for identity horizontally. When I was hardwired by God to get it vertically, I look for something in creation to define who I am, whether that is a marriage or my work or my athletic body or whatever that is. And his warning to pastors is oftentimes you have your self-esteem, your identity by how many people were at church, what kind of sermon you gave, or how effective or useful were you. But really, this is true for any of us. Boy, are you only happy when 
things at work go well, when the money comes in? Are you only really excited when your children do well and they score the final goal to win the game or they do well in school? Is it define who you are? And it is so much more than that. And it is so important that once we understand who we are, it helps us now to live out our lives better. It answers the what I do, ultimately. Uh, the late David Paulson talks about that sequence, right? The who I am will, will affect the what I do. And this is what he says, and I just quote, The order matters. You become generous and merciful to others by continually receiving generous mercies. You learn to protect others by finding refuge in the Lord. You develop into a good father by living as a well-father child of your Heavenly Father. You develop into a masterful leader by living as a well-mastered servant. You develop into a wise teacher by being a well-taught learner. You learn how to husband the wife by, uh, in love by being well-husbanded by Christ. So you get the point. It all starts by who we are and by understanding who I am, that ultimately I am a servant of God. That now leads us to do the practices of godliness, to understand the why I do what I do. And that's the second point that he points to. He now points to now the why question. Why am I doing this? Why am I here? Why did God put me here? Why did God give me these children? Why did God put me in this church? Why did God put me on this earth at this time? Why did God give me these type of parents, these type of children, these kind of siblings? Why did God put me here as a Christian? Why did God save me? The why is simply this. It's for the sake of the elect's, elect's faith in God, it tells us in verse 1. What it is is basically saying, Paul says he is here, why? To benefit the faith of the elect or the Christians. To help them to grow in faith. To share the gospel with them so they would grow in faith. And that's the why of all that he does. And once he understood now why he's here, he can suffer and it's okay. He can go through tribulation, it's okay. He could learn and wait in patience for others, it's okay. Because he understands the why question. I'm here to benefit now the faith of others. I'm here to love others and to point them to Christ. And really that why question is the same for all Christians. It's the same for you, same for me. Why are you here? Why do you have a sibling? Why do you have these people at church? Why do you have a small group? Why are you part of this? Ultimately, is for you to now benefit their faith in Christ, to help them, to be a part of this. Uh, this is why he was here. Now, we often do a lot of things without understanding the why. Uh, today's Father's Day. We could talk about dads and moms. Uh, we can now make sure, boy, a good dad will make sure the child is well-fed, cleanly dressed, Maybe not their clothes might not coordinate so well as many dads try, but they're clean. They have food. They, they get an education. And oftentimes, though, our goals are all too short. And you hear sometimes parents say, and I hear sometimes parents say, or people say to me and Sharon, because we're a little bit older, oh, man, it must be so nice. You, you've, you've met the goal. You've reached it. Right? You know, they're grown up. They're, they're walking with God. They're, you know, Chris is in college. And, you know, boy, it must be nice. You're done. But it, we're not done. Right? 
the goal of it is it's not simply to feed them well or to make sure they get an education or buy them things. The goal ultimately is that somehow they know God better. That's the why. There was a study done. And I want to just pick on dads a little bit because we have an impact that's very unique to the next generation. There was a study done that collected all these statistics and uh, the title of it, the demographic characteristics of the linguistic religious groups, so on and so forth. But a couple of guys got together and they gathered all these statistics about dad's impact on their children. And this is what they found. There's three points I want to share. If father and mother were both regular churchgoers, 74% of the next generation will be attending church. Right? So that's a pretty high uh, percentage of kind of passing the faith down, retaining the faith. Now, this is what happens. Uh, if only the mother is regular and the father is irregular, right? It's always the mom dragging a dad to church. It's the mom that's forcing that to go, guilting him to go. The, for the children, that number drops if 3% will be committed and 59% will go once in a while. So from 74%, it drops to 62%. And out of that, only 3% now take it seriously because somehow the one they looked up to, the one they listened to, boy, if he says it's not important, it's not important to me. And then if the father is non-practicing, he doesn't go. And unfortunately, in the church today, uh, it's majority women. If the father is not practicing, it drops down to 2% will be regular, and 37% oh, will go once in a while. So from 74%, it drops to 39%. This is the impact that dads have. And so I share this with you so that you would understand your call is not just to teach them how to play baseball, not just to make sure they have food on the table. Those are all important. Those are all good things. But ultimately, the, what, the why I'm doing what I'm doing is somehow say, I want to get them to follow Christ. I want them to know their maker. I want them to worship their Savior. I want them to build up godly characteristics and be a good person in God. And if you want to do that, you have to know the why. This is why you are here. This is why God gave us children. This is why God gives people spouses to sanctify each other, to make them more holy. And that sounds so boring and it sounds so unromantic. But really, in the eyes of God, as you have spent some time together, you realize that's the goal. That's the goal, the why behind everything else that we do. And we have to understand this why. Um, Paul writes about this in various places. And one verse that always hit me um, was back in 1993. I was uh, in St. Petersburg, Russia on a mission trip uh, as a college student praying about what I'm going to do and how God would call me. And the one verse that I remember I had a journal then. And I wrote on that journal. And this was the verse that hit me over and over as Paul's own mission statement, his why he is here statement, Acts 20, verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And I love the first part. I do not account 
my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, unless I get this done. So, if I understand the why, and I am accomplishing the why, what happens? What I buy, what I have, what I wear, what I make, what I have in the bank, all of that is secondary. He even says it's of no value. It's not precious to me. What matters is the call that I have to live for Christ and to now share the gospel. Why is he here to share the gospel? You are here to share the gospel. Now, you might not be a preacher. You might not be a pastor. You might not be a vocational pastor to preach a sermon, per se. But you are preaching the gospel in your life. You are preaching it to others around you all the time. And that now leads us to the what. What am I supposed to do then? What am I leading them to? The goal is knowledge of God leading to godliness, the practice of godliness. Now, that's the what I do. This is how I should live. Um, Paul says here in the last part of verse 1, right, their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, that they would now live in godliness. They would practice godliness. What is godliness? Godliness starts with, obviously, imitating someone. That means I have to know God. I have to know who He is. And I hear sometimes people say this, and it drives me crazy, right? When someone says, well, I think God is like this, and they come up with their own conclusion. Well, to me, God is like this. That bothers me so much. It bothers me as much as someone saying, well, my truth is this, but your truth is that. I mean, you can't have both, right? Um, J.I. Packer says this, What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination, lays hold of our allegiance, and this the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher, more exalted, more compelling goal can there be than to know God? So it's to know God, and then to now live in godliness, to practice godliness. Now, going back, as we mentioned, the church the, the, in Crete had the problem, a, a two-part problem. It was the licentiousness, people saying, hey, I'm Christian, I'm saved, but I'll just live as I want to live, and then the legalism coming in. Hey, if you want to be a good Christian, you better do A, B, and C. You better do more than your neighbor. You ought to give more than your neighbor. You ought to do these. You ought to and they're bringing those things into the church, and the gospel is contrary to both. And it dissolves both. The gospel is like this, right? It's in a relationship with God. And let me use marriage as an illustration. You get married. And you sign the contract, right? And the person says, in, in, you know, until death do you part, do you, you know, will you stay faithful? And the pastor says, I do. And the witnesses are there. Now, you don't go to your spouse and say, until death do us part, you, you're going to be here. So, I'm going to go and do as I please. I'm going to live like a single guy. I'm going to go out when I want. I'm going to have girlfriends if I want. Uh, I'm going to go and spend the money that I like and I like to. No, you have to now confer. Now you're in a partnership. And so the licentiousness, the, the free to go and do as I please idea that someone might be bringing into the church is the same thing. It's like I'm married to God, but saying, God, I'll just bring in all my old lifestyles. I mean, there's no rules. This is just love. And that's what we hear often today. Boy, this is love. It's in the name of love. But love has parameters. Who do you love? If they do not now behave in a certain way, they're breaking their covenant. 
So a married man can't go to his wife and say, hey, you know, Friday night, you know, I've got a date with someone else. I'm meeting my high school girlfriend to catch up. You, you can't do certain things. Now on the flip side of marriage, the marriage covenant is not just bound by legalism. You don't get married and the pastor doesn't give you a list. Okay, here's your checklist. If you do this, you fulfill your duty as a man and wife. Here's your list. Okay, what's my list? Oh, Valentine's, buy her flowers. Birthday, buy her a cake. Check, 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 check. And you don't just do the minimal things just to get it done. You do it out of the love of your heart. You do more than you are called to do. And boy, if your budget is 100 bucks, you want to go and spend 200 bucks because you love that person. It's not doing the least that I can do. But sometimes people come to God and they say, what is the least I can do to get in? What's the least I can do to keep my identity? And so the licentiousness, the legalism, and all of that as it's coming into the church, the gospel comes in and it shatters both. And it says, you are in a loving relationship with God. Uh, you are called to this. So, as Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6.11, he tells us two things. Flee from certain things. Pursue godliness. Uh, let me encourage you, during this time, as you have more time than ever before, to flee from the things of the world. Flee. Get rid of bad habits. Don't let it now fester in your life. Flee from it. The word flee means to run rapidly from danger. Run away from this. To what? Pursue godliness. Chase after it. Think about it. Read about it. Ponder upon it. How can I live a more godly life? How can I practice godliness as a 19-year-old, as a 29-year-old, as a 49-year-old? How can I practice godliness? What does that look like? How can I grow in the character of God? How can I practice this? So, the who I am and the identity now gives us the why I am here, which leads to the what? Practice godliness. The church, the Christian who does not practice godliness is one that is empty, that has, is a shell of what it should be. There's a story uh, during the uh, Tournament of Roses parade. One particular float, one year, years back, it ended up stopping in the middle of its route. Now it's a backlog, it's a disaster. They found out that this float had ran out of gas. The flowers and the outside was beautiful. It had ran out of gas. And the irony is that the float that this uh, was represented was by the Standard Oil Company. They had ran out of gas. You see, for us as Christians to not pursue godliness, it's like a float that might have all the decorations, but we have no power. We can't get from point A to point B. And the gospel saves us in this way. And so let me encourage you, know who you are, know why you're here, and then live out the godly life Christ led for us and follow after him. Let's pray.